I'm going to introduce the panelists. Uh, to my right is Amy Howe, who wrote the article for the review, the Looking Ahead article, which I commend to you, as I do the entire review. Uh, until September 2016, she served as the editor and a reporter for SCOTUS blog, which I hope you have heard of. Um, and she continues to serve as an independent contractor and reporter for SCOTUS blog. She primarily writes for her eponymous blog, How on the Court. Before turning to full-time blogging, she served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court and argued two cases there. She is currently occupying the Tom Goldstein seat on this panel, which is fitting. Uh, I think this is the first time in about six years Tom hasn't been in this. He's either in Venice or the Venetian. I can't remember which one. Um, on the far side there is Eric Jaffe. Uh, he has been involved in appeals on a broad range of legal issues, including First Amendment challenges to campaign finance reform, Commerce Clause challenges to health care reform, and other federal legislation. He clerked for Doug Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit and Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. And to my immediately left is Sarah Harris, partner Ed Williams and Connolly. She's a client to the high stakes appeals at the U.S. Supreme Court and federal and state appellate courts across the country. She has argued twice before the Supreme Court, prevailing in both cases, and presented many arguments in federal courts of appeals and state courts of appeals. She clerked for Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, Lawrence Silverman on the D.C. Circuit, received her undergraduate degree from Princeton, her J.D. Magnum Cum Laude from Harvard, and she also has a so fact I told her I like a PhD and an MPhil from the University of Cambridge. If I wasn't here speaking to you, I'd be a philosophy professor right now. So <laughs> please welcome the panel. <clears throat> now, we're going to start off with Amy just to give us sort of an overview of what she wrote in her article and the cases that she covered, which are, to, so, let us say, that are blockbusters, so to speak. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me, inviting me to write the article. Um, happy Constitution Day. It's also Justice Souter's 82nd birthday today. Um, I sort of have him frozen in my mind when he retired, so it was kind of a shock to realize he was oh, really? 82, but we can all raise an apple and a yogurt in his honor um, tonight. Um, last term, which we just spent most of the day sort of talking about, was really unprecedented in the sense that it was entirely remote. Uh, it was the first term with since Justice Ginsburg passed away, and the court shifted to the right, and the court has now has on its docket for the upcoming term a handful of, from the press corps' perspective, at least really sort of juicy cases involving abortion, guns, uh, religion, potentially affirmative action. And so I think the real question is not whether or not the court is going to continue to shift to the right, but how far it will shift to the right, and you know, presumably the answer lies in at least in part with with Chief Justice John Roberts not necessarily because he his vote makes a difference anymore but you know whether or not he has any influence on the court and so that's something I imagine we can discuss and we will see uh, quite soon um, I'd also like to touch a little bit on the so-called shadow docket uh, the article was due, the draft of the article was due on August 1st. It's a wonderfully smooth editing process, but the one downside is you don't get to add to it. And so in August, in the first part of September, there were a lot of developments on the shadow docket that I think we'd probably like to talk about, including because they, some of them are going to be showing up on the merits docket. But just to talk a little bit about some of the, the really juicy cases that are going to be at the court this term, um, as Many of you are no doubt aware during the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump promised to appoint justices who would overrule Roe versus Wade. He said he would appoint conservative justices. It would happen automatically. He appointed three justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And so now is the time to see whether or not that promise will come true. The court is probably in December. We'll hear oral argument in a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a challenge to the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that bans almost all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. So under Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade, woman has a constitutional right right now to an abortion up to the point at which a fetus becomes viable, which is somewhere around 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit uh, struck down the law, said it was unconstitutional under Roe and Casey. This, and I think this is an important point. The state came to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to weigh in. The Supreme Court uh, told the Supreme Court in its petition for review, you don't have to rule on Roe and Casey and whether or not they should be overruled. You just need to weigh in on the constitutionality of this law. 
um, the Supreme Court agreed to take it up after relisting the case something like 15 times and will now hear argument in all likelihood in December. Meanwhile, as you are no doubt aware, if you've been watching the news at all in the last month or so, the Supreme Court, uh, I guess it was about two weeks ago now, it all goes by so quickly, agreed um, on the so-called shadow docket, the Supreme Court refused to step in and block SB 8, the Texas abortion bill, which bans virtually all abortions after six weeks in pregnancy from going into effect. And uh, this was a an order that came out about a paragraph and a half. The justices in the majority in that case made clear that they there were they said there were serious questions about whether or not the law was constitution constitutional, uh, but they were nonetheless were not going to step in and block it from going into effect. The Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's three liberal justices dissented from that order. So on the one hand, the court said that they were not. They were not weighing in on, on the constitutionality of SB 8. But on the other hand, right now in Texas, uh, until the, that law is settled, there's no right for a woman to get an abortion. Um, so that is abortion. The next, uh, the next case that is going to be argued in November that I wanted to talk about is a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Um, Back in 2008, 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus City of Chicago that you have a right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. Um, gun rights supporters came to the Supreme Court many times over the next 10 years or so asking the Supreme Court to say more about the scope of that right. The Supreme Court repeatedly turned down requests to do so. Um, back in 2019, the Supreme Court finally took up a new case out of New York City involving a New York City rule that banned the owners of licensed handguns in New York City from taking the handguns outside of New York, even to go to a shooting range or to their vacation homes, just to give you two examples. Um, New York City, perhaps recognizing that this law was not likely to succeed in the Supreme Court, changed the rule. So much of the argument at the Supreme Court in December of 2019 was whether or not the law was constitutional, uh, whether or not the law was, the case was moot. Um, the Supreme Court finally in April of 2020, a majority agreed that it was moot. Uh, three justices dissented from that decision um, a fourth justice, Brett Kavanaugh, concurred in the decision that it was moot, but suggested that perhaps the Supreme Court should take up one of the 10 or so petitions for review that had been on hold for the last several months pending the court's decision in the New York case so that they could weigh in on the scope of the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court promptly put all of those cases back up for conference, relisted them something like 10 times, uh, indicating that there was something going on behind the scenes and that perhaps they were considering them and then denied them all. Um, again, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. The conventional wisdom in the press room was that there were certainly four votes to grant review in one of those cases involving the right to carry a concealed weapon um, but we don't know, um, but that perhaps that they weren't sure whether or not there was a fifth vote, the vote of the Chief Justice John Roberts to grant review. So then you fast forward to 2021, um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who had written a uh, dissent while she was on the Seventh Circuit, suggesting that she would be more receptive to the argument that the gun rights supporters were making uh, now on the court, and the court agreed to take up this new New York case, new New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Um, it's a challenge to New York's concealed carry regime under which you have to show a special need uh, a, beyond sort of just a general need, general desire to have a gun when you go, are out and about for self-defense. You have to show a real need to have one. Um, and so the court will hear argument in that case in November. Um, the next case that I wanted to talk about is a case called Carson versus, is, does anybody know, is it Macon or Macon? It's, I think it's Macon. Is it Macon? Yes. Um, so back in 2020 in Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, the Supreme Court by a vote of five to four um, ruled that Montana's exclusion of religious schools from a state tuition aid program uh, that provided scholarships to attend private schools as long as uh, they weren't religious schools, discriminated 
against religious schools based on their religious status violated the Constitution. And so this is, involves discrimination, allegations of discrimination based on religious use. Um, the case comes to the court from Maine, which has kind of an unusual system for uh, secondary schools because many parts of the state are quite rural. The, the state's constitution allows uh, and laws allows states that uh, school districts that don't operate their own high schools to make arrangements for their students to attend other high schools, either other public high schools, by sending them directly there, by paying tuition for them to attend those public high schools, or by paying tuition for them to attend private high schools. And so a group of parents are arguing that being able to, not being able to use these tuition funds to attend private schools because the private schools are going to be using the funds for religious instruction uh, violates the Constitution. So I think those are the... Those are good the, to start the, with. It's good to start. Yeah. Um, I don't want to drone on for too long. No, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, especially on a question like, if you don't have any opinions on the abortion case, for example, you can say pass. But we could start with that since Amy did. Um, in terms of what's going on. Well, actually, the interesting question I have is, realistically, is there any way, maybe it's not this case or the Texas case, can the court avoid Roe in the next three years? I mean, they can avoid anything. They're pretty good. Can, can they avoid a, a challenge that does not allow them to duck whether or not to overrule Roe, especially given what states are doing? Too? I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the court's interest in brokering compromises that will avoid formally saying that they're overruling Roe, but like reframing many components of the test. Right. And like, I think, like Casey. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, like Casey, and then, you know, you see, I think the chief's separate opinion in June Medical, which arguably, or maybe not just arguably, but certainly reframes quite a lot of whole woman's health. Uh, and so I wouldn't underestimate the court's willingness to sort of reframe the entire test, but still say as a formal matter, Roe is the law. I mean, Roe has already been reframed, but yeah, the Casey Roe framework is still something. And of course, with the, as Amy brought up with John Roberts, uh, with, with guns and abortion on the docket, I mean, what are, what are his biggest concerns, you would think, for next term? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting to juxtapose the guns and abortion cases, because there, there's so many similarities, both in how states treat those two things, Right, so those states that don't like guns will literally pass anything they can to suppress the right to keep and bear arms. Those states that don't like abortion seem equally intent on doing everything they can to suppress whatever the scope of the right is, whatever you think it ought to be. At the moment, it's a right, and they don't seem to care. Uh, so I, I think the resolution to your question may end up being some kind of readjustment of the tiers of scrutiny, because I think a lot of this is ultimately sort of the standard of review is causing these problems. The standard of review in something like Casey uh, is sort of just up in the air, whatever you feel like. And so it, it emboldens people to sort of say, well, <laughs> if, it's, if it's just a balancing test, guess what? I have a new theory and a new theory and a new theory. Sorry. And with guns, I think it's much the same thing. Intermediate scrutiny in guns is just like a balancing test, it seems like rational basis in most cases. Uh, so maybe they'll, they'll solve this problem by not overruling Roe, but by coming in with uh, whether it's a, a weaker or a stronger or whatever it is, but giving it some structure so that we don't constantly have to do fact-bound cases. And I, I could see that getting some traction among, let's say, Kavanaugh, uh, maybe even Gorsuch, to just sort of say, hey, you know, the big leap of do whatever you want and we're out. Mm -hmm. while, while intellectually appealing, perhaps, to some on the right, uh, it seems like a big step in a short period of time. I, I have made that analogy many times because it's not only our guns and abortion, our, the culture war aspect, but the Supreme Court in both instances have, have loosely, loosely upheld a, bit, a fundamental right that, that they have not wanted to clarify very much what that is. Um, and so all these states will say something like, you have to be able to run a half marathon before you get abortion, but we're just trying to make sure it's for the health of the mother and we all know what it's for. And if a state says you have to be able to pass a really complex test to get a gun, we still all know what that is for. Um, <clears throat> now for the guns case, which again, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, rewriting the question presented, uh, I don't know if anyone followed the question, did they rewrote the question presented? I did not. Yeah, so they rewrote really it to talk about licensing and not just simple carry. 
So does New York State's licensing system for carrying weapons violate the Second Amendment? Well, when that originally <coughs> happened, so we have a brief in that case, and I followed that case, and the, the, the broader view was that it was probably just to more accurately reflect what the law does. And they put in concealed carry license, reference to concealed, I thought, because the law only deals with concealed carry. Uh, the law, the, their law separately bans open carry. And one can imagine differences between open and concealed carry, but I think sort of the, the view from Second Amendment practitioners is you might be able to restrict one or the other, but you can't restrict both. So there might be good reasons like to not terrify the public by carrying a gun in the middle of a subway openly and waving it around. Uh, or there might be reasons not to have concealed carry because then we don't know who's armed. You could go either way on that. And I think that's arguably up to a state. But to say you can't do either <laughs> and therefore can't carry at all, I think is the way a lot of Second Amendment practitioners would approach that. And I, I think maybe they're rewriting the question, sort of try to finesse that a little bit and hopefully uh, some of that will come out in oral argument in the briefing that, you know, you got to at least let one of them happen if you think it's a right at all. Otherwise, just say it's not a right. I think that's right. And it also, I think, partially explains why the court relisted so many times. And I think more broadly, when you look at the juxtapos juxtaposition of the abortion case and the guns case, it sort of highlights kind of two dynamics on the court. Like one is what Amy highlighted, which is is the chief's, are reports of the chief's waning influence overblown? And the other question is, where is Justice Barrett going to fit in this? And I think both of those cases highlight Justice Barrett is already a very powerful effect on grants. You only need four justices to grant. You need five to win. <laughs> that always creates some sort of a, a tension because, you know, you may not have four votes to grant if you think that the result will be a loss or a bad outcome on the merits. Uh, but I do think it's safe to predict that had Justice Barrett not joined the court, I don't know that either of those cases would have gotten granted. I would have been surprised, very, very surprised if they were. Uh, but I think the chief's influence is really on the merit side. I mean, I think in both of those cases, what we're talking about so far is how is the court going to potentially compromise? Are they going to try to do a grand bargain on tiers of scrutiny? Are they going to try to sort of make something, uh, a, another crack at the Roe Casey successor standard? I don't know. And then Amy has also mentioned the religion, the Carson case, which is also an area where the chief, I think, is very effective or has been in the last couple of terms in cobbling together very broad majorities for narrow rules. I mean, Carson is sort of like the third crack in what you might call a trinity of cases, starting with Trinity <laughs> Lutheran, to get to one result of probably a rule of you can't discriminate against schools based on either their exercise of faith in infusing uh, faith in the classroom or simply their religious status. But it's, they're, they're taking like sort of almost six or seven years to get to that one ruling. I'll be really interested to see because Trinity Lutheran um, was a, a narrow decision with a broad majority. Um, Espinoza was not. I mean, Espinoza was 5-4, and this was not, you know, this is not a case in which Justice Barrett's vote is going to make, necessarily make a difference. This was, you know, the Chief Justice and the other conservatives and the four liberals on the other side, you know, talking about, and I imagine we'll talk about the shadow docket in a little more detail later on, but, you know, talking about another area in which, you know, we're seeing the effect of Justice Barrett, you know, the Texas abortion law and all likelihood would not be in effect if Justice Ginsburg were still on the court because there were four votes to block it. And I have no doubt that she would have been a fifth. Um, so. Yeah, if I could just touch a little bit on this Please. question of, you know, Justice Barrett and the, the, the shift between grants and merits. Uh, I, I think we sometimes sort of over describe the effect that the extra justice is going to have, it's less about what the outcome is going to be than about getting to an outcome that actually does anything. So I think the fear for a very long time, if I had to guess, was not that Roberts or somebody else wouldn't vote the way you hoped they would vote. It's that they'd come up with some single opinion with a quirky non-test test that did nothing. So why are you granting a case to do nothing other than add to the confusion? Uh, and for those who remember the O'Connor years, one might have imagined that lots of cases would have been better off not being granted than actually being decided uh, as they were. They added nothing and only, only messed it up for another 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, so maybe it's that. Maybe they think they can now at least have a consensus on a theory. Uh, and that theory may come out one way, may come out the other. And I'm not fully confident that Amy Coney Barrett's going <laughs> to do what people expect her to do. But I, but I imagine she might be firmer on a theory 
uh, as opposed to sort of keeping options open kind of. It seems to me that uh, the last few months of this last term uh, show, maybe showed, given the coalitions and cases like <clears throat> in, uh, in Fulton, for example, that Roberts's strength is pretty strong. I mean, his, his ability to try and get the court to decide narrowly and, and more unanimously is maybe more <laughs> strong than we thought it would be after Barrett's, or do we still not know? Is it, no, <clears throat> for the cert docket? Um, Okay, so there's that whole just Justice <coughs> White. Every time you get a new justice, it's a new court. Yeah, so. and every time we have to, every time uh, I write an introduction to the Supreme Court, I use that line, and so does Leah. So do We're going to have to have a <laughs> coin flip of who gets to use that line. Hmm. I think in, in future pieces. Um, now, so I was just so moving on. I don't know, Sarah, if there's anything you want to highlight about cases that you're watching uh, that you've added here, or because she took the big ones at the top. Um, on big ticket stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Amy has also mentioned the shadow docket, and now might be a good time to talk about it because a lot of the, this is an interestingly lopsided term, right? I mean, like the, the really sexy, big controversial cases are abortion, guns, and to a lesser extent, but an important extent, Carson in the religion space, and uh, many of the other cases on the docket are very important, but not sort of like headline news every week, um, except for the shadow docket, and which is, you know, there's a lot of discussion I think in the meta sense of what is the shadow docket, what's the court doing, why does the court have all these emergency stays, why does it seem to make so many important decisions these days through the shadow docket, that's sort of one set of questions. And the other set of things is just what has the court done recently in the shadow docket, and obviously the Texas stay is really important. Um, the COVID, all of the COVID litigation has produced some actually pretty substantively important rulings, I think, in the religious liberty space with respect to non like, sort of bolstering the idea of non-discrimination based on uh, exercise and, and status alike. And uh, also the Remain in Mexico uh, skirmishes, which is sort of the latest for a, <laughs> a holdover from the Trump administration, which was a feature of the shadow docket, is sort of the skirmishes over immigration policy you see uh, the administration would enact a policy, you'd see a district court enjoying the policy, it would get litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court in an emergency posture, and Remain in Mexico is sort of a holdover of that because now the shoe is a little bit on the other foot and other district courts are now enjoining the Biden administration from undoing these policies, Remain in Mexico being one example uh, where the court um, allowed the Trump administration Remain in Mexico policy to proceed over the Biden administration objections. And so just sort of yet another example of a lot of important sort of policy slash sort of things that are uh, visible publicly happening on the shadow docket. Now, I'm not sure the court has much choice. A lot of these uh, cases that come up from emergency stays and nationwide injunctions are coming to the shadow docket because you can't just wait for the court you know, to take 90 to 150 days to have your cert petition filed and do all the rest of the steps and get the court to act on it fast. Uh, so the fact that there are nationwide injunctions that have obviously nationwide effects on very important policies means that I think we are going to continue to see the emergency stay docket a perennial sort of fixture so long as there are nationwide injunctions. So um, I'm not sure it's sort of the court's fault that they're doing so much on the shadow docket. It's I think it's frankly now baked into the way administrative law currently works for better or for worse. You want to weigh in? You know, yeah, I... I you know, the shadow docket, I hate that phrase. I just hate that phrase. It's, it's, it's implies something nefarious, insidious, whatever. It's just nonsense. You get an application for a stay. What are you going to do about that? You're going to hold public oral argument? Somebody's about to be executed and you get a stay application. The answer is you rule on it and you rule on it as quickly as possible. And when you get nine cats herded together to come up with an answer, you release your order. I just don't know what the world expects from them other than do the business that comes before you, give us an answer. Now, I understand that some of these shadow, shadow cases or whatever, some of these emergency applications are leading to opinions, but quite frankly, I would take those opinions with a grain of salt, which is they're good for now and they're trying to discourage people from throwing more emergencies at them if they, can, if they can help it. But at some point, those will go up on the full merits, and I'm not sure anyone's going to feel particularly bound by an emergency opinion when it gets to the merits. They'll rule on it deliberatively and with full consideration, and that'll be great. What I find interesting is I think a lot of this is coming up because people are becoming so impatient. Um, you know, you used to see abortion laws that would pass and say, this is law, but we stay the effectiveness 
unless and until Roe gets overruled. Mm -hmm. So that there can be a deliberate challenge to the law, there can be a deliberate consideration of the law. Now you get Texas or other states saying, but nope, goes into effect today, tomorrow, instantaneously, no matter what. Uh, you see this with some of the executive actions causing and then overruling their predecessors as we had flips in administration. Uh, if people would just sort of give the institution of the court the respect it deserves and give them at least some time to actually be judicial about things, maybe we wouldn't have so many of these rulings. So it's bad. I, mean, I do think there are legitimate transparency issues. You know, if somebody's going to be executed, you know, it would at least be nice to know how people voted. Um, not a one, you know, a one paragraph order in the middle of the night. Um, I do think that the court has responded to some of this. You know, you saw with the abortion order, it was, there was a longer order. There were opinions, the dissenting opinions that came with it. Um, you know, and I also think, you know, some of these, obviously, if you're talking about an execution and the warrant starts at 6 p.m. and it runs until midnight, you've got to get that opinion out. But if you've been sitting on something like in the, the Roman Catholic Diocese of New York, you've been sitting on something for a week and you release it at, you know, 10 minutes before midnight on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I mean, come on. Like, you know, important, you really hate that. Well, I mean, that's that's part of my job. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least or, issue it at a time when like, I mean, that that is part of the reason why it seems a little bit below board is it's not as transparent as it could be. And, and we see like with the spiritual advisor case that's coming up, this is a case involving an inmate's right to have a spiritual advisor in the execution chamber, um, praying out loud and, and laying his hands on him because he says that that's part of his Christian faith. And the Supreme Court has had a couple of these cases come to them on the so-called shadow docket over the last two years. The first time it was a, uh, someone wanted his Muslim imam in him, with him in the execution chamber and the Supreme Court turned him down because he said he came to the court too late. The second time it was a Buddhist priest and the state of Alabama, I think, wouldn't allow him to have the Buddhist priest when they would have allowed a Muslim imam or a Christian priest or a Christian pastor. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Um, and then the third time, uh, uh, Texas, I can't remember exactly what the issue was, but the Supreme Court said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You can either let everybody in or nobody in. And so Texas said, okay, we're not gonna let anybody in. So then an inmate came back and said, well, now they're not letting anybody in. And the Supreme Court sent the case back to the district court for findings about whether or not there were actual security concerns that would require Texas to bar everybody from the execution chamber. And so somebody came back to Texas, came back from Texas to the court last week, and the Supreme Court said, "Okay, let's hear oral argument about it in October." And they, that, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I'm delighted they did that. By the way, yes. I think that case, yeah. that case drives me crazy because they claim that there's no religious, no burden on religion, on exercise of religion. Right. Whatever the security concerns are, that's lovely. But if you're going to stop thinking about it at the front end because you imagine there's no burden. Those cases drive me right. nuts. I'm thrilled that they took that case. But I think it'll be very interesting now. That, like, and I think that, I, again, this is all speculation, but this came the week after there was so much criticism of the court's uh, order in the Texas abortion case. And I think it was a response to some of that criticism. And they're like, okay, you want us to act quickly? We'll act quickly. Well, um, I, guess, I guess one other feature that's unusual is two merits cases in October and November disappeared in that same week. So they had a lot, like a gaping hole in their docket. Right. Because I think the other interesting phenomenon and sort of like drawing it together is like the shadow docket's very active, but the court and the court now has, I think you could say four more solid votes to grant on things. And yet like there has been never been a time when they've granted fewer cases. Yeah. And so it's just a weird kind of push and pull dynamic. And maybe that means it's great that the court can be flexible when there are particular issues on like the so-called shadow docket. Eric, you are welcome to come It's not even called the shadow docket anymore. It's called the so-called shadow docket. <laughs> like, that's the official name now. <laughs> uh, but like- The emergency docket. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see like when, you know, when the US versus Texas, the US litigation over the Texas abortion law or the inevitable litigation over the vaccine mandate comes back to the Supreme Court on the so-called shadow docket, you know, do they then order oral argument quickly? You know, has the, have they sort of set a precedent? The, the Texas, you mentioned the Texas law. I don't know if anyone wants to, I mean, we have the Dobbs case uh, 
I don't know if anyone wants to weigh on that craziness. Like, uh, for the, first of all, the law is bizarre. Uh, I, I find it fascinating and difficult in that I understand the technical objection to who do you sue and can you get relief? But at the end of the day, if the answer is you're subcontracting out state action, there has got to be a legal theory that says that's not kosher, uh, right? And, and it's not just abortion, right? It's guns, it's all kinds of stuff. It can be mask mandates. You could do this for a mask mandate and say, oh, your neighbor can sue you for not having a mask mandate. And if they win, they get $10,000 from you if you don't wear a mask. Uh, but if they lose, you can't get any money back from them. That strikes me as absolutely nuts way to enforce state law. If this is state law, then you have just deputized your entire population and other people's population to be state enforcers. Uh, but I don't know that our case law is there yet. And I don't know how to best get it there without throwing a monkey wrench into everything, but it's inconceivable to me that this model of state law enforcement can get a pass until somebody actually litigates it through. Just because the chilling effect, imagine First Amendment law like this, the sheer chill on exercise of constitutional rights. Shocking, absolutely shocking. Well, in campaign finance situations, people are often essentially deputized to do that. And IJ has brought cases about that and doesn't really work. I don't know if you have any comments on um, SBA. I mean, Clark made the comment at the lunch that maybe one way of sol facetiously uh, solving the Texas, uh, uh, the execution case was just subcontract out the execution, right? Like it's a third party now, it's not the state, so. To other inmates. Yeah, oh sure, yeah. Just open the door, <laughs> let them in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the hard thing is like, there is this push and pull, right? Because there are areas of law where you do deputize people, private actors to enforce to enforce sort of, to act in the shoes of the attorney general. Uh, and what exactly the barrier is to the Texas law, like, I, I think it is, it was probably apt for the majority in the state application to say like raises very difficult questions. And I think the reaction a lot of people have is there are almost certainly various legal theories for challenging this. It's just very hard to do so in the posture of an emergency state application. And that I think is the fundamental mismatch. It seemed like the court was deeply uncomfortable. Certainly five justices expressed extreme discomfort with saying that they thought there was a likelihood of success on the merits when the folks challenging the law, they felt like just didn't actually present the case as to what was what exactly the obstacles with the Texas law were. And I do think it, it like it, it raises just really hard questions. Uh, and sometimes that just means at the emergency stage, like novelty may be your best friend in, in, you know, in getting the outcome you want when it's a really fast snap decision. I oddly enough agree. I actually think the stay for the emergency stay application probably had dozens of defects in it, uh, not the least of which is it didn't seem to include all the right defendants. Um, that being said, it would be nice on a going forward basis for them to eventually come up with a theory on how to deal with this procedural gambit because it's not gonna go, if it stays intact, it's not gonna go away, and it's gonna to apply to lots of other constitutional rights, or if you think maybe constitutional rights or so-called constitutional rights, whatever you feel about abortion, I don't really care. Um, so I'm not saying that I necessarily think they made the wrong call in this case. It is just a terrible precedent, and so it needs to be dealt with thoughtfully so that you don't get caught in that bind again. Do you have anything to add? You, know, you mentioned this, Sarah, and I, I'm sure Rex Shaver will have. I, I, you kind of mentioned pussy, especially with the Remain in Mexico. Um, what is happening in admin law? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's a very broad question, but like, there's, there seems to be a last two years have created a very different landscape than what's going forward. And now Chevron and everything else is sort of being altered. But on, in the actual situation, I know where a lot of you practice, it's, it's very different now, right? Yeah, so administrative law right now, at least on like the big ticket items, feels like endless war. It's sort of like a war of attrition. I mean, I think like the contraceptive mandate is maybe the best example. It's like been around the block like 17 million times and will probably come around the block again because every win is so narrow and it always goes up to the Supreme Court. It always ends up feeling like there's a circuit split. There's always nationwide injunctions like on both sides. Um, and it, it keeps coming up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court keeps sort of kicking the can down the road with either sort of procedural rulings or rulings that are sort of halfway solutions. And that just guarantees more litigation. And each administration, especially when there's a change in administration, will try to undo its predecessor's acts. I mean, the most meta example of that is like the Remain in Mexico state order, where the court cited the DACA decision to say you didn't explain this well enough. 
Um, and so, it, you know, I think some people looking at this say what comes around goes around to different administrations. But I think if you look at it in terms of the development of a law, the law, it's a very weird and novel situation in which it kind of feels like no administration big ticket items ever get resolved. They often never go into effect. And it's just litigation for a decade solid. And it's a very strange state of affairs, especially because Congress doesn't do as much legislating as it used to, which means that administrative agencies, I think, on both sides, you know, when in both sets of administrations have tried to pick up the slack. Uh, and, you know, not always the greatest thing to have administrative agencies trying to take the place of Congress, but then it's just sort of stalemate. It's really weird. <laughs> Is the DACA, we can take that, but go back to common cause. There's so many things we can think for this. I don't know if Eric, you want to weigh in or? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've followed a number of cases. I have a case up there dealing with Sir Chevron. I am uh, in, I am permanently hostile to Chevron. Um, I just think it's a terrible idea. I think the law should be interpreted by judges, not by administrators. Uh, but I think this problem of switching administrations, once you have Chevron, then you are subject to the changing waves of politics as to how they want to work with ambiguity, which, you know, these days Congress seems to build in on purpose. Uh, <laughs> So, so I find it difficult uh, and, and troubling, which is more of a reason to overrule Chevron than to constantly have the, well, we're going to fight about this for 10 years until some other administration comes in and yanks the policy or reinterprets it or says, uh, we interpret that ambiguous phrase to mean exactly the opposite of what our last administration. If you really want regulations and laws to flip-flop like that based on the current executive, uh, that's just an awful way of running the country. It's an awful way of running litigation that necessarily takes some time. Let's just get a decision. So I feel this way about the bump stock case. Yeah, definitely. Which, you know, yeah. that's crazy. And I, and I wouldn't be shocked at all if the current uh, Department of Justice changes their mind and decides we do like Chevron and we want Chevron, even though the last Department of Justice said don't. Yes. Um, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that as a litigator, as a client. I don't know how you deal with that kind of stuff. Uh, it's an interesting dilemma of who ultimately speaks for the government, right? So when the government speaker keeps changing their views, uh, this is a case that's coming up in the abortion context, right? Where the AG of what, what state was it? Was it Wisconsin? Can, can, Albert, Mr. Kentucky. 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 Cameron. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they defended the, defend the law, then they said, oh, we're not going to defend it anymore. The AG wants to come in and defend it. Like, who do you get to speak for a government? It's a bigger question than just ad law. Sort of metaphysically rich, if you think about it. Yeah. So, you know, Amy, write about, a little about that. Because yeah, they, that, the question in that is about, can he defend the law? Right. right. Uh, he, he tried to bring it to the court as an abortion case, and can they defend the law? And the court was like, eh, we're not getting into the abortion part of it. But this is a really interesting question. Um, you know, one thing about the Remain in Mexico policy, when the Biden administration, the Biden administration came to the court on the Remain in Mexico case. And it was basically the same week that they were defending on the eviction moratorium. And the Biden administration's stay request in the Remain in Mexico case had this paragraph at the end that said basically to the Supreme Court, remember all of those times that the Trump administration came to you because a district court was trying to dictate immigration policy and foreign relations. And you said, oh, no, district courts can't do that. Like, OK, this is what's going on here. And the Supreme Court was just like, yeah, no, this is this is not the same thing, apparently. Um, yeah, well, I think Remain in Mexico also is a victim, perhaps, of the SG's office. The, another feature of change of administrations being that the SG's office changed positions on an awful lot of merits cases last term, including Remain in Mexico, which was by then had matured from the so-called shadow docket to a real merits case and then was demoted again when the administration said they didn't actually want it. Uh, so I would have to guess that I think Remain in Mexico was, I think the yanking it from the merits docket probably hurt them when it came time I to go to the court. Right. Uh, as opposed to the foreign relations aspect, which is notable. It's an important part of it, but. Uh. <laughs> now, I'll be open up for questions uh, in just a, about five minutes, and, but uh, for people online, if you're watching, uh, we will be looking for questions from you. The hashtag is Cato Scotus. Um, Sarah, you mentioned, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about a petition you have about Bivens uh, that, that could be interesting after our last year Bivens flame out, so. Sure. So, I mean, I actually think like the theme of the coming, just sort of like the coming petitions to watch a little bit is sort of like overruling things or not, question mark. Like there's a lot of petitions coming up that 
give the court opportunities if the court wants it to overrule various decisions. Seems like a hot trend right now. Um, so there is obviously the Harvard petition, affirmative action petition, which asked the court to overrule Grutter. You don't have to do that, but it's an option. That was CDSG'd. We'll see what the government says. I'm guessing the government's probably not going to see the same thing as they did in the Trump administration, but you know, we'll see. Uh, I think we'll I'm know by December whether position is not holding my breath on that one. <laughs> there are the flurry of petitions asking the court to overrule McGirt, which was the decision that said that about half of Oklahoma should be, in fact, uh, you know, varying disputes over whether it's just criminal law or not, but was in fact an Indian reservation. Um, there are various petitions always perennially about whether to overrule qualified immunity. And then I actually have a petition that raises questions about whether the court should cut back on or overrule Bivens, which is a precedent from the 1970s about implied rights of action against uh, federal agents. Uh, it's implied purportedly under the Constitution. Uh, the court has increasingly ex expressed skepticism about whether or not Bivens is a thing. <laughs> uh, and this petition presents that question, but also sort of narrower questions about whether not to extend Bivens to two different novel contexts. So it is kind of an interesting juxtaposition with the qualified immunity debate, because I think there are various folks who think that, uh, who sort of from a political standpoint, think that accountability for officers of all stripes is, is just sort of the bottom line that they want to pursue. And then I think there's also a school of thought that says, both Bivens and qualified immunity are doctrines that have been questioned as lacking some sort of basis in the Constitution or, or any sort of statutory framework. And if the court were to cut back on one, it might make it easier to cut back on the other because they sort of balance each other out in some ways. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> I commend to you uh, Steve Waddick's article about the Hernandez U Mesa or, uh, that he argued uh, in last year's review. Um, I don't, do you, is there any petitions or things that you want, that you have at the court that you want to um, mention? I have a few things that I'm sort of interested in. Um, you know, the bump stock petition, that's up, that's out of the 10th circuit. I have one in the DC circuit. <clears throat> that actually is, is a little bit about machine guns and bump stocks, but mostly about Chevron and raises some good issues about Chevron's application in dual use statutes, statutes that have both civil and criminal applications, which I think, uh, is a mess. And just think EPA, think SEC. There are lots of big, big statutes that create big, big crimes that apparently we're giving deference to the agencies to define those crimes, and that bugs me to no end. Um, I think there's uh, the Janus follow-on petitions that keep cropping up about um, <clears throat> whether bar dues are inconsistent with Janus or whether Keller should be overruled. Or That's just whether or not the unions are giving people the opportunity to recover their money if you know, like well, on a Thursday in mid-August, right? <coughs> right the those only two. time you can do it. Like. It's like, right, exactly. There's some procedural stuff on that, which I think is interesting. But I like the Keller overrule part, which yeah. fits with the theme. And um, who wants to pay bar dues anymore? So. Yeah. And then I think there's a big petition coming up soon, I think, um, on Dormant Commerce Clause, this, this pork statute in California. So it's, uh, what is it? Oh, you mean the one that's destroying the pork industry? Uh, yes, yeah, that one. Uh, the National Pork Producers Council versus Ross is, I think, the petition coming up. It's coming out. Mayor Brown, I think, is bringing it soon. Um, but that's fascinating because it's like a follow-on to Wayfair a little bit. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a fan of the Dormant Commerce Clause, but I think it does a lot of work that should be done by other statute, other constitutional provisions that were misinterpreted 100 years ago. So like, it does real work. It does constitutional work. It's just the wrong theory. Uh, and so what do you do about that? What do you do when the mistake happened 100 or 150 years ago, and this is sort of just made up areas grown up to fix that mistake? Uh, it's a fascinating dilemma because it's hard to imagine that California gets to tell the whole country on threat of shutting down their borders to imports and exports, which is the real clause, uh, that you've got to do it our way or, or the highway. I don't know. I'm not a fan of that either. I met, I met another fan of the imports-exports clause. <laughs> I didn't know we had that in common. Yeah. You do? Yeah, all right. Um, all right, uh, I'm going to see, uh, unless, is there something else you want to add before we uh, There were a couple of yeah. cases, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court not having, uh, you know, having left Employment Division versus Smith in effect. There are a couple of cases that are asking the court <laughs> to either clarify or reconsider Smith, um, there's one called Dignity Health versus Minton. It's a case filed by a transgender patient who wanted a hysterectomy at a Catholic hospital. Um, there were a lot of sort of procedural issues that, that the respondent said should keep the court from taking up the case because it came out of a state court. But this was a case that was on hold for Fulton, but they didn't send it back to the lower courts or deny cert after Fulton. So they considered it a couple of times before the summer recess, and it's up again at the long conference 
Um, there's one that's a little further over the horizon called Seattle Union's Gospel Mission versus Woods. It involves a um, legal clinic for the homeless run by uh, an evangelical Christian organization. Um, the mission told somebody who applied for a job at the legal clinic who was in a same-sex relationship that the same-sex relationship was contrary to the church's teachings. Um, and so the question is whether or not the First Amendment protects the mission's rights to hire people who share its religious teachings. Um, and so this is these are actually sort of issues similar to what the court took up in Masterpiece Cake Shop a couple of years ago. Um, and then there's one called the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany versus Lacewell. Um, the diocese is represented by Noel Francisco. You've probably heard of him, um, which I think is up on the long conference. And this is kind of similar to the birth control mandate. It's a New York regulation that requires employers to fund medically necessary abortions through their employee health plans. Um, it has an exemption for religious employers, but not for other religious organizations like Catholic charities. So it could be an interesting one. I bet you did not know about that. That's pretty crazy. Um, all right, uh, questions. Um, Nicole, you're up. Uh, on the outside of the back in the blue shirt there? Yep, that's you. She's gonna come to you with the mic. One sec, she's gonna come to you with the mic behind you. Uh, Jim Duholm, unaffiliated. Uh, this may be more of a comment than a question, but isn't the the issue ab about uh, how the uh, constitutional issue would be raised in the the uh, Texas uh, abortion case, Shelley against Kramer? I mean, they'd have to go to court. Private parties would have to go to court to enforce the uh, uh, the penalty, and that would constitute state action, wouldn't it? When if the court uh, uh, enforced the law. Absolutely. It's just a question of whether we allow the massive chill to happen before that. We have lots of pre-enforcement uh, challenges to criminal laws, to various First Amendment-related laws, uh, precisely because we understand that the, the, the harm happens uh, arguably well ahead of any actual litigation. So it's just a question of reconciling those two sort of disparate theories of if you believe that you can violate somebody's constitutional rights by chilling them, well, then we need a theory that deals with that. Uh, I think uh, move up here on the inside with the blue shirt. Do you see up a couple rows? Yeah. My name is Andy Hawks. I'm a local attorney. Um, I've now read the merit briefs for both sides in the Dobbs case, and it seems to me that each side has a glaring weakness. The weakness of Mississippi's brief is that it, it comes off as a bait and switch. I mean, they got the court to accept grant to review the viability rule, and then very little in the brief addresses that. And they make no real principled argument as to why 15 weeks should be okay, but 16 not, or whether some other rule should be adopted. The weakness I found in the respondent's case, that's the abortion provider's case, is that it makes no real attempt to justify Roe as an original matter. And by Roe there, I mean the essential holding in Roe that Casey reaffirmed. I'm, I'm wondering if anyone on the panel has a similar assessment. I, well, first of all, I wouldn't say that Casey reaffirmed Roe. I mean, would you, I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think that is a big part of their argument is like that almost like we don't have to defend we don't have to explain it or rationalize it because you know Roe was reaffirmed in Casey and Casey's been around for 30 years and it's stare decisis. Um, you know, I'm, right. Uh, I mean, and, and then I think it's to go to your your second point. I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not that you know that comes up either at at, at oral argument like this. You know, you said we don't need to reconsider Roe versus Wade. And Casey, and this is what most of your brief is about. I mean, they have digged cases mm -hmm. for that. The dismissed as improvidently granted. So I was just I was think I think is the one of the interesting about Roe, I get this sense that people even who are very pro-choice will have a hard time defending that decision. 
And so Casey replaces, you know, the three, the trimester like, framework of Bachman's opinion with like the undue burden test and all that stuff like that. I don't see Roe as a jurisprudential matter has that many defenders. So maybe that's part of the answer. I guess I felt like I had the opposite reaction in that I thought both briefs were very well done, uh, both as briefs, but also in terms of making tactical moves. Uh, I think Mississippi's brief, I think, correctly captures where at least several justices start off with, with respect to the Roe-Casey framework. And I think if you think about, from Mississippi's vantage, how to defend the 15-week law from a sort of starting off point like, and what they might need to defend it, I think the, the brief in some ways is very honest about what they think the court's options are. And I think the respondent's brief is also very tactically effective because its theme is stare decisis, stare decisis, stare decisis. We don't need to go further than stare decisis. Don't make it overcomplicated. We're not even going to engage with the sort of same premises. So you get this weird situation, I think, of two briefs that are in some ways two ships passing in the night. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think a feature of abortion cases is that the court knows the issues very well, and I'm not, I'm not sure the briefs matter. <laughs> they matter, obviously, in setting forth some of the factual issues. They, met, they matter as sort of pieces of advocacy to sort of anchor the party's positions. But I think if June Medical shows anything, and in some ways Whole Women's Health too, it's that, and everything else in the court's abortion jurisprudence, it is that the court often reaches compromises and struggles to figure out how to reframe its standards and that's sort of what the court will do. Uh, and it's not clear to me, even though both sides have exceptionally good advocates, uh, how much advocacy will even matter. I, I lean more in that direction, that, that at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't have engaged beyond stare decisis. <clears throat> There's just no profit there. There's no value there to say, OK, let's reconsider Roe from scratch. That just sort of invites them to do it, as opposed to say, no, 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 no. They said, no, we're not going to fight about that. This is just about what Roe means. Uh, and maybe we'll tweak the balance in Casey a little bit or whatever, but we're not fighting about should Roe be flipped. Uh, I think that's probably the right tactical move from the defender's uh, point of view. Uh, from the state's point of view, I suspect they're playing for concurrences, not for a win. So yeah, you talk about all you want. Talk about Roe, talk about this, talk well, about I that. I think they're playing for a win because they assume that the court will compromise. Maybe, I, you know, I sort of feel like the best they can get is a loss with a remand that says, think about it more. Uh, I'm not sure they get a true win. Um, and so they're just sort of playing for the concurrences to, to use on remand and, and on future cases and to understand how to frame future challenges. We have an online question here. Sam's going to read out. Uh, that's right. Uh, we have Frank Garrison asking via YouTube, to the extent any panelists are familiar with the case, what effect, if any, you see American Hospital Association v. Becerra having on Chevron. The case is granted for next term. Ooh, I'm glad you asked. We were actually talking about this earlier. One of my backup questions. So thank you, Frank, former legal associate. Um, I'll start off because I know Eric also has views in Amy, too. So this was one of the more interesting grants because it comes to the court from the D.C. Circuit. There's definitely no circuit split. It is about like a CMS reimbursement policy calculation that is so complicated to explain. I think it would take like the entire segment to figure out like how to talk about the QP in substantive terms. Uh, and the court is granting a question about Chevron deference in a case where if you read the papers, it sort of at least seems like from petitioner's description, there may not even be sort of much of a Chevron issue so much as like, did the DC circuit simply grossly misinterpret the statute kind of question. Uh, and so it's a really interesting grant. It's obviously a split list, sort of an important case-ish for for reimbursement purposes. But it's also sort of one that I, I wonder if the court had buyer's remorse in not taking some of the bump stock cases or didn't want to take those cases for other reasons, because it is at least a very clean opportunity if the court wants to do sort of like a Wilkie type, let's put some more guardrails on Chevron the way we did for our. This is actually a good way to do it because the stakes are not, you know, the stakes are manageable um, and the court can sort of say various things about Chevron without having to overrule it or without having to do other stuff. So super interesting grant. Uh, I, I sort of feel like, yeah, the, the Chevron issue in that case seems like non-existent, but it, it, it's, it's included obviously in the questions presented. I think just as sort of red meat for the courts to just sort of wave the flag in front of them and say, come on, come on. But but perhaps they're just going to use it as an occasion to say something that will influence some of the more meaty Chevron cases that they might not want to take for other reasons, like the bump stock cases. With your uh, passionate hatred of Chevron, um, 
every time, every time I try and count how many votes there might be to overturn it, and a lot of that view changed after the Kaiser v. Wilkie case, because I thought that hour was dead, right, in the eighth this. So I'm not sure there's more than three or two, I mean, for overruling Chevron outright. Look, there are like a couple of instances where you could seriously imagine Chevron applies, where the court says, you should, you know, you should do X, Y, Z if, if the weight of a truck is over 20 pounds. And you need the agency to figure out which kind of scale I'm going to use. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. I'll give you a deference to the agency that has to fill in the operational details at some level. Eric, I don't know if you're enough of a passionate hater of Chevron. Yeah, I know, yeah. Come on, that's sad of me. Like, you gotta... No, no, but, but I'd require a plain, a clear statement from Congress giving them that, <laughs> okay. delegating that authority, because I'm really anti-delegation, too. <laughs> but uh, but I, I agree with you. There's not To fully overrule it from soup to nuts is hard to see, but to really ratchet it down, no criminal applications, no cross-mixed you know, applications. Major questions doctrine. Yeah. But it's so interesting, too, because I think that the Supreme Court, like Chevron, treats Chevron as sort of a dirty word. Like you do not see Chevron in the Supreme Court's opinions. You don't even see people arguing Chevron to the Supreme Court so much. Yet in the D.C. Circuit, it's almost sort of a an, an equal and opposite reaction of like being more enamored of Chevron at this point than in any time in like the last 20 years. <laughs> you see a lot of Chevron in there. So it's, it's attacks of created defenders, I think, <laughs> to some extent. Um, Nicole, over on this side. Uh, Thank you guys very much. I've gotten a question in for each panel. The, uh, I was a little surprised um, when I heard, I, know, I remember back in the early 80s when the Supreme Court said that women were not eligible to be registered for the draft because the combat arms, mainly infantry and armor and the army, did not relied on the draft and women were not eligible. Well, after 2015, the rules changed, and so women are now eligible for infantry and armor, combat arms. And I think one of the appellate courts made reference this past um, few months when the Supreme Court, I think, refused to say anything because the, I think the appellate court was saying, well, the whole thing is moot because the reason the Supreme Court gave no longer applies. Do you guys envision them making them taking that up? Or, I think they said something about it's a congressional issue, which I, I find a little strange for the Supreme Court to say. But... Um, do you, you familiar with this at all? I'm vaguely familiar, I, and I think they said that was isn't wasn't there supposed to be a congressional report on it? And so that's the sort of thing where the Supreme Court is like, you know, we will let them work this out. And there's a Hogan petition that got denied, and I yes. think this is a description of the perhaps a concurrent or dissental. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure which. I'm no. I don't know. We're not sure about the 1980 decision. Sure decision. There was certainly a petition recently that Hogan did that was very well done, but it got was denied. very well done. It was denied, and it was with the Supreme Court basically said, "Not right now, not our place." Yeah, the Supreme Court. So, so I, I think the thing that people don't get about the Supreme Court is just, they don't fix every problem that rolls it through the door the second it rolls through their door. That's not their job. That's not what their jurisdiction has them do. And it would be a terrible, terrible idea to take the first case that pops up uh, just because somebody asked. I mean, you know, they're, they're not on demand. So the fact that they said no doesn't mean they're never going to take it. It just means they're waiting to see if the problem sorts itself out because the resources of the Supreme Court are valuable and limited, and, well, though less limited these days, apparently. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and they shouldn't be the ones making these calls. We're always so concerned about activist judges, but the minute they say no to a cert petition, we're like, oh, my God, how did they say no? Uh, so this is, you know, they like things to percolate is the phrase up at the Supreme Court, and maybe this is just that. Sam, online question? Uh, yes, this is from John J. Vecchioni, uh, specifically to Eric, but I suppose uh, anyone else on the panel could answer. Hello, John. <laughs> uh, do you think the court will take Apogean v. Garland this term or wait for the issue to percolate through the circuits? If I was a betting man, I'd say I think the odds are not in favor. Well, first explain what the case is. Oh, I'm sorry. So Apotian is another one of these. There are several bump stock cases out there. Apotian Can you is explain the, what a bump stock is? Okay, for so, <laughs> so a bump stock, for, for those of you who are not gun nuts 
people like me and my clients. That is. Like a YouTube, <laughs> right, that a YouTube moment. <laughs> what a firearm is first. Uh, is it a machine gun, Eric? <laughs> no, no, it is definitely not a machine gun. Uh, a bump stock is a, a stock, uh, you know, the shoulder stock that you can put on a, on a rifle that lets it recoil just a touch, maybe an inch or, or so. And that helps you use this technique called bump firing, which is you, sh you pull the trigger, the stock recoils a little bit, which resets the trigger. And then if you push things forward again, you hit the trigger again. So it lets you go back and forth and shoot the thing very fast by having the recoil sort of assist you with the release. And the ATF has said this is now a device that makes a machine gun out of a normal rifle or, or semi-automatic rifle. Uh, and there have been a bunch of challenges to that. I have a challenge in the DC circuit. Uh, NCLA has a challenge in the 10th circuit. Um, there's a challenge in the Fifth Circuit. There's a challenge in the Sixth Circuit. I think there was just a military court of appeals ruling on this in a criminal case. So there are a bunch of cases out there like this. The gate, my case, the Gatiss case, uh, was the first up right after this got passed. The Supreme Court denied cert on this, saying it's a little early. But Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch said, well, but of course Chevron is totally inappropriate here. And so maybe the courts below will fix that and get that right because, you know, God knows this was wrong. Um, and so cases have been kicking around since then. This Apotion is another case. It's up on preliminary injunction. Uh, it remains to be seen whether after a number of rulings, even in the preliminary context, the court is still reluctant to take it or not reluctant to take it. They might have gotten over that, uh, given that there have been a variety of rulings, or they might want to wait for a merits case. There's a merits case coming out of the Fifth Circuit. Our case is on the merits now, right before the D.C. DC Circuit. So it's just a question. If I had to bet... They have enough drama <laughs> on their docket this term that they don't want to add that. Another gun case, even though it's well, not a gun guns case. guns and Chevron. Yeah. So overruling Chevron in order to allow machine guns to go, I mean, that seems like a little more drama than they may be prepared to accept just this moment. They could do it on a shadow docket. That yeah, would be really no, controversial. <laughs> they actually, oddly enough, should do it on the shadow docket because a lot of these cases have been decided uh, on a theory that the government can't waive Chevron. Mm -hmm. Right, so the government said, we don't invoke Chevron, we don't want Chevron, and a bunch of courts have sort of shoved Chevron down their throat anyway. Uh, absurd on its face in so many ways. But, but just recently, at the end of last term, uh, the courts accepted basically a waiver of Chevron from the government. So one could easily see any of these petitions being GVR'd just on the basis of that and saying, well, why are you making me rule on Chevron when they don't want to do it? The other side doesn't want to do it. We've already accepted that in other cases. So I could easily see this shadow docket kicking this back to the courts for another three years of litigation. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, me neither. For the shadow docket. Uh, Devin, up there, uh, over here. Yeah, so Nicole can see you. Another former legal associate. They're, po they're populating the, the legal world. Fly my pretties. Hi, uh, Devin Watkins, Competitive Enterprise Institute. I don't understand the justification for why the names of the justices aren't listed on the shadow docket for how they voted. I can understand per curiam opinions where there are like multiple authors or something, but why don't we know who voted in favor and who voted against certain things on the shadow docket? I just don't see any That's justification. Excellent for that. question. I was like, I bet Amy agrees with you. <laughs> Uh, maybe they feel like that they're telegraphing something they don't want to be telegraphing. That's the best I could predict. Um, they, they don't give votes on cert either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, just at some point, these are preliminary, non binding decisions in many cases. Uh, and so you do them for the same reason you do per curiams, is sometimes attributing them locks you in in a way that you don't really think you should be locked in. And yeah, to be fair, I mean, a lot of the stuff on the shadow docket is stuff like, can I have more time to file my cert petition? Yeah. You know, can can be things that is incredibly mundane and, you know, can only go to, sometimes only goes to one justice. And I think there may well be, and this is something the justices don't like to do, to sort of assign more merit to some orders over others to be like, this is important enough that we're going to put everybody's names on it, but this one isn't, uh, may also be something that factors into it. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing is the more transparent the court has been on the shadow docket, like the more it seems to be criticized, which may be like the wrong incentive system for them. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, I think it's hard, to, like now that everything is, the, the court is like so much more transparent, I think even the last couple of years in terms of both audio and online opinions and even access to sort of emergency stay applications. I mean, I think for most of the court's history, the idea that like you could access a lot of this stuff was 
you can see paper copies maybe, but probably not of the probably not of the emergency docket. And I feel like there's sort of a push pull for the court that is really difficult to navigate, which is like the more they the more they try to give to be transparent, like the more people seem to say that the shadow docket is illegitimate and I, mean, I don't I think wanting to works. see the filings is that. Of course, everyone crazy. wants to see them as a reporter, but like, <laughs> I, I think the court is also sort of trying to balance its institutional interest of how it does deliberations, and maybe this gets to sort of the Supreme Court reform, reform proposals too in the commission, but I think one of the interesting things just going on with the justices speaking is sort of Justice Breyer going out there and saying, you know, don't necessarily rush into this. The court, like, whatever you do can get flipped, and the court is an institution that tends to make its own decisions. And it's, you know, I, I think most of the justices have that perspective because they know how it operates internally and it is hard to convey. Well, and I think the other thing is, you know, there's always the opportunity for dissenters on any of these. So if somebody feels strongly that people ought to be held accountable, dissents do that. Uh, and so to the extent that none of the justices feel strongly enough to dissent on, on, by name, that says that they'd rather speak with one voice as a court, regardless of what the voting conference was. It's like the deliberative process privilege, right? They just say, okay, well, we voted, I lost, but I'm good with that. And so we're just going to speak with one voice as a court, not as individuals. And, and there's some value to that, I think. Absolutely. Um, any questions? Uh, yes, up here. Uh, wait for the mic, please. He's coming from behind there. <clears throat> Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen Keat. Uh, I'm a retired diplomat, and I was a had a specialty in economics. And I should emphasize that I am not a lawyer, never practiced law. Uh, at lunch, a number of us were talking about the Mississippi case and abortion in general. And everyone except for me was of the belief that the, there was a good chance that the court would go and decide in favor of Mississippi. I was of the opinion that uh, the court will either, you know, rule against Roe v. Wade, decide that it was erroneously decided, or will uphold it. Um, could you please comment on or differences of opinions and who you think is most likely to be correct? Sure. I mean, I think that the that with the state. With the lower court having struck down the law as unconstitutional, I don't think that the court, after 15 weeks or whatever of considering the, ca the case at conference, took the case so that it could then say, you're right, the law is unconstitutional. I think that some form of the law is going to survive. Exactly what the court's going to say. Are they going to say that, are they going to go ahead and overrule Roe v. versus Wade? Are they going to come to some sort of uh, compromise that where they get rid of viability and we go back to just we go to some sort of standard that just looks at whether or not the law is an undue burden um, that I don't know but I would be surprised if there are five votes to say you're right the law is unconstitutional I agree with that and I think that's going to be the kind of case where John Roberts will spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the court comes out as unscathed as it possibly can to in public opinion 